Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. And this is Jill Weinbanks. And today's hashtag Jill's pin is actually a necklace. And it represents the hodgepodge of questions that we're going to be asking our guest today. From the growing Republican field to the legal challenges surrounding Donald Trump to President Biden's ability to keep getting things done in Washington, as Jill said, there are lots of things to talk about today on this week's episode of iGen Politics. Joining us today to talk about this crazy conglomeration of issues is Jennifer Rubin. You will recall that she was a guest on our show before, and we loved her comments so much then that we're thrilled to have her back. We're proud that Jen has now joined us as part of the Politicon family of podcasts, in addition to her many other roles, uh, being a columnist at the Washington Post, an MSNBC political analyst, the author of Resistance, How Women Saved Democracy from Donald Trump. I only hope that's true, Jennifer. Her new podcast is called The Green Room with Jennifer Rubin, and it's really great to have you with us. We are thankful that you're willing to join us today. My pleasure. Yes, Jen Rubin's Green Room on Apple Podcasts or wherever you follow. I actually debated just wearing a green pin to represent the green room. So it was sort of a toss up. Um, okay. I decided to go with this one because it was right. handmade. It's very pretty. And all that. Thank very you. Pretty. So it, it is going to be something that I think our audience is going to love the topics today because it's sort of all the headlines that they're interested in. And we're going to start with the growing Republican primary field. Yes, we get three new additions this week, including Chris Christie, including Mike Pence. I have yet to find a Mike Pence voter, by the way. I don't know who would meet this profile of someone who adores everything about Trump except January 6th, but doesn't mind that. Pence didn't really deliver what he was supposed to deliver for Donald Trump. I don't know who this person is. Um, and <laughs> I don't know whether Mike Pence really thinks that there's a voice out there or whether he's in this to kind of clear his name with the right. I'm not sure. But uh, I think he has less chance than Chris Christie. <laughs> but Chris Christie is also entering the race. And although he doesn't have much of a chance, I think he has a big role. And that role is to deliver some knockout blows to Donald Trump and also to Ron DeSantis. I think Christie is the kind of character um, who has aggressiveness and the kind of moxie and the presence to um, really throw some punches. And because he's a former prosecutor, I think he's going to be able to tell the audience that these charges that we're going to see very soon, and I'm sure we'll talk about that from Jack Smith, are real. They're really serious. They're not going to go away. There's a strong chance of prosecution. And it would be nuts for the Republican Party to nominate such a character. Now, voters may not want to hear that. They don't really like Chris Christie. But somewhere along the line, I think this will marinate in their brains and give them the idea that this not, might not be a wise choice. So if he can do that, if he can knock out both Christie and DeSantis, we'll give them a medal. And hopefully the Republicans will come up with not necessarily someone we like, but someone who is not a threat to democracy. And that would be fabulous. Yeah. Right before, the, right before the show started, I was on Twitter and I saw this perfect tweet um, from Larry Sabadow from the University of Virginia. And he said, I guess right before we went live, Chris Sununu said he's not running for president. And Larry responded by saying that leaves about 0.3% up for grabs by the 10 plus Republicans in the race. So I guess there's some good news for Mike Pence, Chris Christie and everyone else. But I'm wondering, do you see any kind of indication that there is anyone who can take over Donald Trump or overtake Donald Trump in this field right now? I actually think that it's kind of a two-step process. I don't think Ron DeSantis can do it because I think his interpersonal skills are so horrible and his demeanor is bad. He's just like a lug. So I think the way it would have to go is someone would have to knock out DeSantis and then there would have to be some coalescing around an alternative candidate. And maybe that person is someone who's not in the race, like Glenn Youngkin, who is um, in many ways dangerous because he looks all warm and fuzzy in that little vest he wears, but is nevertheless um, a proponent of a lot of this um, MAGA 
anti-woke, which is really anti-constitutional um, speech uh, activity. Um, it might be somebody who's in the race, but I don't think they're going to be able to get to Trump until they get rid of DeSantis because he's sucking up so much of the not Trump vote that's right now in the Republican primary. And of course, in 2016, the large number of candidates worked to Trump's advantage. And it looks like that could happen again, where you have everybody jumping in. Absolutely. And although I think everyone thinks, well, maybe Jack Smith will take out Trump for us and then all of his votes will be up for grabs. I think that misunderstands the mentality of the Republican primary voter who is just going to delude themselves for as long as possible, yeah. convince themselves that somehow this is all a ruse or this is all a fixes in. That doesn't explain, by the way, what they do if he, in fact, gets indicted and convicted. But I think you're going to have to have someone who will take him out. It's not simply the fact that he's going to get indicted again. And by the way, there'll probably be a third indictment in August from Fonnie Willis. And oh, by the way, there's still the January 6th charges from Jack Smith out there. So you can have three indictments. You get four indictments. I think until someone kind of delivers the blow or unless Trump becomes so completely, you know, overwhelmed in some fashion. Um, and I don't know how much more could be unraveled in his brain. Um, he's going to stick in there. And then the Republicans have a heck of a problem, which is exactly what they deserve, because they have never had the nerve to get rid of Donald Trump. They've never had the nerve to say to their voters, this guy is a kook and a threat to democracy. And now they're stuck with it. Oh, well. And, and even now, only Chris Christie seems to be willing to take him on. Although I think Nikki Haley slightly did in her CNN uh, town hall last night. Uh, is there anyone who's going to take him on head on? It's a good sign that Nikki Haley and Mike Pence actually criticized him on Ukraine, yeah. because that's a nice, clean issue where actually, although there is a America first and isolationist wing in the Republican Party, most Republican voters actually don't like Putin and actually do support Ukraine. And here's an issue in which Mike Pence, Nikki Haley, without making a whole to do and personally attacking Donald Trump, can simply make the case that this is a, what's in our strong national interest and we shouldn't go around ingratiating ourselves with dictators. Voters are smart enough to figure out what they're talking about. And then Trump has a choice. He can either say, I'm not for Putin. I never was. I no one was tougher than Putin than me because he just like reinvents reality. Or he can say, that's darn right. I'm going to end this war, you know, immediately. I have a secret plan. So he will say something, but at least then that begins some kind of conflict that gets them into the ring. Right now, they're, you know, dancing around so far from him that no one is going to be able to land a blow. So you mentioned Ron DeSantis's name um, a, a little bit uh, ago, and he's pulling second to Donald Trump, but still trails by a lot. But he seems to be focusing a lot of his campaign on wokeness and out-trumping Trump. And, and is there any indication that wokeness is something that people actually care about right now? Well, if you look at the general voting public outside of the Republican primary, the answer is absolutely not. Most people don't know what he's talking about. Not that he does know what he's talking about, but most people don't know. Or if they think they know what it's about, they're in favor of it. Because don't we all want to be woke? Don't we all want to be alert? They've got a point. Inside the Republican Party, although they talk a lot about this on talk radio or on Fox News, it's not clear that voters are solely motivated by that or primarily voted, uh, motivated by that. Um, when Trump talks to voters, he rarely gets into that kind of minutia. In fact, he mocked um, the war on wokeness. He's all about hating illegal immigrants and, you know, fighting back against, you know, elites and getting revenge on the Justice Department. And somehow that resonates much more clearly, at least with working class Republicans, probably because they can't figure out what the heck wokeness is about. And after all, this is really a cult of personality. Whatever Trump is talking about, it's Trump that they're attracted to, that he is able to focus and 
um, maximize their anger, their resentment, their worst tendencies, whatever latent racism or homophobia or whatever they have. And that's what they like. And Ron DeSantis doesn't give them that. Um, he's not going to give them that emotional charge and make them feel like they have someone who's really gets who they are and is going to attack the people they hate. Wow. There's so much to talk about here with these other candidates. And the things would be, I'd love to see a debate, but do you think Donald Trump will take the debate stage? Is there anything in it for him? There is absolutely nothing in it for him, Jill. And I think that's a big problem that DeSantis and others really haven't grappled with. Why in the world would he get on the debate stage? He would instantaneously give attention to people whose names most of the voters have never heard of. Right. He's going to set himself up for, even if he doesn't answer it, for these uncomfortable questions any moderator is going to have to ask him about indictments or about classified documents. Why would he or risk- women. Or women. Why would he have, absolutely, why would he risk having Chris Christie do to him um, what he did to Marco Rubio? Now, he's much more formidable than Marco Rubio, but- Certainly, Christie has the ability to start slugging away and stick with it. And why would he even take that risk? All he has to do is say, this is beneath me. I have a majority of the voters. These people are a joke. And then he can sit there on social media, you know, tweeting, not tweeting, but social media alonging. I don't know what the social truth thing is called, but whatever the equivalent of tweeting is, and criticize it and mock them. And he did this before. He did this in 2016 when they had a Fox News debate and he didn't participate. He just sat there tweeting away and the entire press corps focused on him and they ignored these other people. And it worked perfectly because he got all the attention and he made the point that these are little people. These aren't, you know, even in his class. So why would he even show up? I mean, he doesn't need to get on the stage to slug DeSantis. He can do that every day. Yeah. I mean, you also wrote a really great column recently about Chris Christie how, and how he really isn't in it to win the nomination. Can you talk more about that and what you think? I mean, not even Chris Christie, but other Republicans right now, it seems like they're motivated by, I don't know, perhaps a will, uh, perhaps a desire to go on Fox News in the future or get some sort of Fox News anchor or, or kind of pundit position. Is that kind of how you see it, too? I think there are several categories. There are the people running for vice president. I would put Nikki Haley in that category. I would put Tim Scott in that category. There are the people who just want to be known because they're so um, marginal in the party and they either think that they have a future or they think by elevating the profile just a little bit, they might get into a cabinet in a Republican primary. And then there is Christie. And I think Christie is there because he figures he will get some kind of reward, whether that's a vice president, whether that's attorney general, God forbid, um, whether that's he even deludes himself into thinking he could be the nominee by knocking these two front runners out. And I think he's been dying to kind of reestablish himself as this kind of tough guy, truth teller. He kind of humiliated himself in 2016 because although he made some arguments against Trump, he then immediately endorsed him, was essentially quiet for four years since January 6th has been criticizing him. And so he looks kind of foolish and no one really um, has much good to say about him. They either think he was too subservient or they think he was too aggressive. So I think he's on a little bit of a self-redemption tour. And he is certainly one who could market a higher visibility for himself, whether it's a book, whether it's speaking fees. So I think there's no downside for him showing up. What's going to happen? Trump is going to say mean things about him. That's not a you know, a downside. He's not going to run for any other office. Yeah. So I think he has a lot of motives for doing this. And it will be really interesting to see whether he exerts enough force and he gets enough immediate attention that he kind of rattles this make-believe world that Republicans are operating in. They seem to think that they can nominate him. And I don't know what's going to happen. What, they're going to nominate someone who's been convicted? They're going to nominate someone who's going to be in prison? They're going to nominate someone who has an ankle bracelet around them? I don't know what they are thinking, but they are not grappling with reality. And if Christie can force them to grapple with some reality, 
Maybe that's a start. Maybe that's the beginning. And remember, if Donald Trump is not the nominee, a lot of Republicans are going to stay home. And that's an equally big problem for Republicans, because let's say you're I don't know, you're Tim Scott or you're Nikki Haley or any of these people. Are they really going to turn out the kind of numbers that Donald Trump turned out? Especially when Donald Trump is screaming from a prison cell someplace. It's rigged. They've persecuted me. Don't let them get away with it. We all remember what happened in Georgia in the Senate races um, after he lost in 2020. He essentially said the whole thing's rigged. And Republicans said, OK, well, we won't turn out and vote. And they got two Democratic senators. Well, it's good for the Democrats if it's bad for the Republicans, um, but I like the picture you're painting. But speaking of the pictures that are painted, let's talk about uh, how the media covers all this, because they are our window onto the primaries, onto the candidates, onto the policies. And what do you think about how the media should be covering Trump and the other presidential candidates, particularly on the Republican side? And of course, I want you to focus on the CNN so-called town hall, including the one last night with Nikki Haley and um, your criticisms and how you feel about their attacking you. Well, yes, CNN got very upset because I had the temerity to write a column that was essentially repeating a graduation speech that Nikki, that uh, Christian Poor gave at Columbia University. Um, Matt Dowd and I had some fun on Jen Rubin's green room, um, <laughs> kicking around why they reacted so strongly to me, just repeating her admonitions, but be that as it may. I think the most recent town hall with Nikki Haley was a perfect window into what is wrong with the media. Nikki Haley said something that was factually false, that was dangerous, that was reprehensible. She said that the presence of trans mm -hmm. students, trans youth in bathrooms, essentially in school, was somehow contributing to the suicide rate among young women. There is Nothing more ridiculous than that. There is zero evidence of that. What there is evidence that LBGTQ youth who are bullied do have higher rates of suicide and suicidal ideation. So it is, first of all, repeating something that is likely to bring more abuse on the trans community. It is also highly offensive and trivializing suicide using uh, suicidal um, youth as kind of a prop in all of this. And although Jake Tapper may be a very good reporter, he didn't really challenge her on that. He essentially said, well, isn't there some room for humanity? How about saying what you just said is false? There's not a scintilla of evidence. Do you want to rethink that connection that you're making? That's what the media has to do. They are not in the business of turning over their stage to liars and demagogues. They should be in the truth-telling business. And he doesn't have to prevent her from answering that question. In fact, I want to hear what she would say when she was challenged on that. But to let that go just personifies this passivity, this disinclination to challenge Republicans because it will look like the media is ganging up on them. And as a result, they normalize Republicans. They create this whataboutism, moral equivalence, and they help pollute the airways with these sorts of attacks that are intensely harmful to certain members of society. So I was somewhat aghast um, that he didn't challenge. And Jill, because uh, I'm a recovering lawyer, you're more a real lawyer than I am. But I sometimes think, you know what? Get rid of all of these news people. Hire a bunch of trial lawyers. Ah. Put them up on the stage yeah. because trial lawyers actually listen to the answer they get, are able to identify a lie, and in real time catch people on it. That is a trial lawyer skill. I used to think journalists had that skill as well. They clearly don't, or they've been told not to exercise it. And well, as a result, these people are given a platform to blather nonsense. Well, well, I, how, how, okay. how, let me just follow up on that to find out how would you set up these formats in order to allow for real-time fact-checking? 
Would you have a separate panel who would go ding, ding, ding? Got to check that and get in there. Would you have a time delay on the answers so that nothing is broadcast live? It's broadcast with a delay so that there can be the time. How would you do it? Because I think you've hit on something that is exceedingly important to get the facts out and to get them to a broad swath of the public. Not, I mean, people who are listening to CNN are not necessarily the people who don't know that those are lies. I'm worried about her repeating that on Fox News and everybody going, yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. So how do we get these facts out? In an ideal world, you'd have someone like the late Tim Russert who did this job, who was able, he came so prepared and he was able to catch these people and interrogate them. There was something that used to be called the Tim Russert primary that you went on there and you had to kind of get through that in order to be taken seriously. So number one, it would be to hire people who have the skills to interrogate these people. Secondly, it would be to change the mindset that somehow their job is to just put out both sides. It would be to adopt truth telling as their guiding principle, that his job is to make sure that not only that people understand what this person is standing for, but understands whether this person is saying something that's true or false. Who says that there's a function to be made by allowing people up there just to spout lies? Journalism is about telling the truth as best as we are able. Why would you allow someone to, in real time, as you say, live, kind of just shovel out nonsense to confuse and bemuse people? And that's how we get COVID denialism. That's how we get um, these myths about trans youth. Um, It's very, very dangerous stuff. Now, it may be that there just aren't Tim Russerts out there, although I think um, I would love to see um, Joe Weinbanks take over the town hall duties along with uh, Barb and Joyce and some of our other favorite uh, legal minds. Um, But if that's not going to happen, then take away the studio audience for certain. Secondly, maybe don't do it live so you have an opportunity not to not to edit what is being said, but to give time for the commentators to, you know, run a Chiron or to do a fact check and say, stop the tape. This, by the way, is wrong. I actually think that's somewhat unfair to the person who's speaking, because then that person doesn't have a chance to respond. You've got to do it in real time. You've got to be able to engage with that person. And you want to have that moment where Nikki Haley says, oh, no, 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 that's not what I meant at all. Um, And, you know, retreat, because that serves a purpose, too. First of all, some modicum of truth comes out. And secondly, you see that she's just saying whatever pops into her head until she's caught on it. So I think there are lots of these changes that can be made. But the overriding problem is that the current media does not see that their overriding objective is the preservation of democracy and the pursuit of truth. They may say they do, but all of their habits of mind, their way in which they present the news tells us that it's not, that they're in this ratings game or they're in the make up your mind. One side says X, the other side says Y. I, I'm wondering, I want to go back to Jake Tapper and, C- and CNN's case, because I was also taken aback by his lack of kind of willingness or ability to kind of push back against Nikki Haley. Same with Caitlin Collins during the Donald Trump town hall. Do you think it's because they can't do it, like they lack that ability? Or is it that perhaps the marching orders from CNN is to kind of cover both sides and be, I don't know what fair means, but to be fair for these kind of presidential candidates? I am, honestly don't know, Ricker. I go back and forth myself and I try to think, oh, do they do that intervention when it's not a presidential town hall? No. Sometimes they do. But if you watch the Sunday shows like I'm forced to do, it's pretty bad there, too. The same thing happens, that same pattern. Yeah. So I think it's kind of become habitual, whether it's I don't even think CNN has to say it. I think that the marching order, the mandate, the mindset is such that they just don't want to do that role, that somehow they think that is taking sides. And, you know, it, the 
presentation of someone's point of view worked when both sides were at least in the zip code of the truth. Now, these people are nowhere near the truth. And in fact, they're not even trying to be. There is a deliberate effort to mislead and to bamboozle and to spread conspiracies. And so you can't keep that old habit of mind. And so the question you asked, Victor, is a really good one. I don't know which is first. CNN demands this, so they hire people who don't aren't inclined to be aggressive in questioning, or they have a pool of people who don't have that skill, and therefore they have to conform their shows to it. Maybe it's a little bit of both. It's interesting because, of course, recent reporting about CNN suggests that there may soon be a shift in leadership, and that in part it's based on this very, very question of is both sides now their goal? And what does both sides mean when one side is true and the other is made up? And so, but as long as we're in, let's just finish up this idea of these presidential forums. They've now had two and they've stacked the audience. And you mentioned one of the things to do would be to get rid of the audience because particularly in the Trump situation where you had an audience laughing when he called her nasty woman and cheering when he said lies. Um, does fairness require that they repeat the format for President Biden and that they stock it with members who are strong Biden supporters? I mean, that seems to me what fairness requires. What do you think? You're right. If that's the road they're going to go down, then they have to. Um, now, in point of fact, they really don't do that. And that is so telling. It's an effort. It just shows how obsessed they are in bending over backwards to appear tough with Biden and to let the Republicans kind of have their say. And I think, you know, it's kind of like, you know, a, a abuse victim. They get so um, conditioned um, to behave in such a way because they're afraid of getting bonked on the head by the right wing, which is constantly working the refs, which is constantly accusing them of liberal bias, that they don't treat the candidates the same. That's the irony. If they treated the candidates the same, they'd do exactly what you said, Jill. In fact, they let people in who ask hard questions, God forbid, um, all the time. Um, and, you know, you see it in the White House briefing room. I, I had to stop watching those live because to tell you the truth, it was not good for my mental health and emotional <laughs> well-being because it was so infuriating. Every question was this aggressive snide, aren't you lying to us? Didn't you contradict yourself? It wasn't even an attempt to find out what the administration's position was. They simply felt that they had to be as obstreperous and argumentative as possible because they were tough on Donald Trump. And that's just wrong. That is not helping people understand what's going on. And I'll give a perfect example of how the media misinforms the public. I have been saying for months now that the economy is incredibly strong, that the gloom and doom in the reporting is misleading, unfair, that there are not signs of a recession. And Lo and behold, in today's Wall Street Journal, maybe it was yesterday's, um, comes a story, you know, we're not anywhere near a recession. Okay, thank you very much. So what have all these people in the White House briefing room been whining about? And what about all these headlines that have been, yeah, jobs, but inflate, you know, uh, recession looms? Where is the accountability when it comes out that whatever they're frame of reference is, was wrong. And we saw this with the red wave. Do you remember this? We've seen it with the economy. There is no accountability. There is no kind of reconsideration. There is no giving the president his due, acknowledging that, oh, maybe he has orchestrated this remarkable recovery, and maybe we're going to escape a recession. So it convinces people that we are much worse off than we are. A large part of the population, in fact, maybe a majority, thinks we're in a recession right now. We're nowhere near a recession. That's a falsehood. How did they get that idea? From watching the news, from watching the news right. misinform them and have this negative bias. If you were a teacher 
and your students came away with the notion that the Civil War was fought in the 17th century, you would say, there's something wrong with that teacher. They are really doing a cruddy job of explaining basic facts. We should have the same reaction to the media. How did the people get the idea we're in a recession? That's just wrong. Well, look what they're watching and look what they're reading. I mean, there is no accountability. And that's, like you said, part of the big problem here. But as Trump continues to find himself in greater legal jeopardy, how do you think the media should cover him? I mean, you mentioned there are multiple indictments that are that could be coming. How should the media be covering his candidacy? Because it's not normal. I think, first of all, you have to continually remind people. Former President Trump, comma, who orchestrated an attempted coup or former President Trump, who has already been indicted X number of times. You have to keep that frame constantly. Simply referring to him as a former president really underinforms people. It allows him to assume the mantle of a former president without accounting for his real biography, which is the only president to have ever done this and to have ever uh, waged war on American democracy. So I think step number one is correctly identifying him. Step number two is every single time he says it, you have to challenge the big lie. And I don't care if it makes your broadcasts and your columns repetitive, but every single time he says it or one of his opponents say it, you have to correct the record. Because if you give up and you say, okay, well, people have heard you know this enough, then they win. Then that becomes the normal position. Then it becomes perfectly acceptable for Republicans to be in election denial. So you have to do that. And the third is they have really failed to challenge this notion that Republicans like Trump's policies, but not him. I'd like to know which policies those really are. Was that the policy that grew the debt? Was that the policy that created hundreds of thousands of uh, unnecessary deaths from COVID? Was that the policy that sold American intelligence down the drain and took the side of Vladimir Putin? Was that the record that never got a infrastructure bill passed the way Biden did? What policies is it that they're so enamored with? I'm having trouble thinking of these. And it's a dodge, of course. It's a make-believe remembrance that the only thing wrong with Donald Trump was January 6th. And that's just wrong. He was a disastrous president with lots of policy, egregious errors and mistakes and attacks on democratic institutions. So I would like the media to not simply accept that as a line. They hear that from one of the candidates or they hear that from voters and then, okay, next question. And they go on. They really need to probe what that means because that means holding him accountable, not only for January 6th, but for his record. Um, And I think the failure to do that is, again, a major failing of the media. So those are just a few things. I'm sure they can't handle any of those. So I should probably stop giving suggestions. But if they could do any one of those, it would be an improvement over what we have now. It also is up to the Democratic Party and the Democratic um, establishment to take on those issues, because everything from family separation to all the things that you mentioned are things that really do not serve the people who are voting for Donald Trump. And the things that the Democrats are doing are helping those people. But I I wanna um, hypothesize something that I think is actually quite possible um, as part of this discussion, which is with the scheduling of the grand jury meeting again this week, it seems to me that it's quite possible that Donald Trump could be under multiple indictments. And it's not just the New York one, it's the coming Georgia one. It's whatever's gonna happen with his lawyers meeting with the Department of Justice and with the grand jury meeting again, that he could be under multiple indictments before the election, but he probably won't be able to get tried before the election. So you could end up having him win in 2024 and be elected to office. And then he could actually, at least as to the federal cases, dismiss them. He could order justice to dismiss them. So we're talking about serious impediments to democracy again and to justice. 
what, I mean, is that really possible? And what do you think, does this motivate Democrats to get out there and vote to make sure that it doesn't happen? Well, it would be a disaster, um, in part because not only is Trump threatening to get revenge against all of the people who have prosecuted him, which is itself an abomination and a violation of the rule of law, he's promising essentially to pardon himself, which is the repudiation of the central principle of our democracy is that no one is his own judge. Everyone is subject to the same laws. The president is not king. So if you're running on the premise that you're out to destroy American democracy, that is a problem. Now, it is possible that one or more of these cases could come to trial. Alvin Bragg, for example, has a trial date in March. If Jack Smith were to indict for sake of argument tomorrow, um, it is possible, although not likely, that you could at least begin a trial when Paul Manafort was indicted, he went to trial 11 months after that indictment. Now, Donald Trump is going to delay. He's going to take interlocutory appeals. Um, I have a sense, though, that the federal courts have kind of had it with him and his delays and that a judge may feel consistent with the rule of law and consistent with due process that he has an obligation to kind of speed things along so that the American people do have an answer before it's too late, um, that they are able that if he is exonerated, the American people should know that. If he's not exonerated, the American people should know that. So it's going to be very interesting to see which judges he draws in these other cases and what kind of calendar he gets put on. Yeah. Now, a lot of my readers um, and listeners have asked, well, what happens when you have all these cases going? And the answer is that some judges are going to defer to other ones. And traditionally, state courts have deferred to federal courts. So, for example, let's say you just have two cases, just two. <laughs> um, Alvin Bragg, in all likelihood, is going to talk to the Justice Department and say, OK, you guys want a trial date in June of 2024? fine, you guys go first, I'll hop over and delay my trial date until the fall. That is entirely possible. The judges will have to figure out how to coordinate. And this isn't so unusual. We have this all the time, for example, in police cases in which there is perhaps a state prosecution for assault or for murder. And there is also a federal case for violation of civil rights. So there are lots of instances in which there are both state and federal charges and they work it out. They're going to have to coordinate. So I think if Donald Trump is counting on Alvin Bragg, helping him to slow down the train so that Jack Smith doesn't get a conviction. I think he's misleading himself and his lawyers are misleading because I think Judge Merchant, who is a very, very good judge, and Alvin Bragg, the prosecutor, will say, no, 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 we're not going to be a hindrance to federal prosecution here. You go ahead, Mr. Uh, Smith, you go ahead and have your case and we'll figure out a trial date after that. I just want to say in Watergate, we indicted in March and went to trial in September and had a verdict on January 1st. So it is not impossible that these cases could go to trial. And some of them, like the documents case, wouldn't be a long trial. It right. really wouldn't be. Right. Some There's of them would be. Yeah. Yes, they're, they're simple cases. And you make such a great point. And, and I wish that you know, moral lawyers would make this point, which is you can get a fast trial. And what's more, you can get a fair trial in DC. Yes. Donald yeah. Trump keeps raising this bugaboo that he'll never get a fair trial because everyone's, you know, a liberal in DC. First of all, he's going to have the same problem in whatever courtroom he has. His case is very well known. But as you know, Judges always figure out a way to run trials. They send out a jury call for a thousand people. They put together a very complicated jury questionnaire. So they eliminate a lot of people. They bring them in. And in federal court, the judges do the voir dire. And they're going to question them about their political views. And they're going to ask them at some point, even though you voted say, for uh, Biden, can you put your politics aside in order to render a honest uh, verdict? And 
many of them are going to say yes. There are a certain amount of preemptory charge, uh, challenges that both sides has, but you're going to get a jury. You really are. They got a jury in the E. Jean Carroll case. They got a jury in the Paul Manafort case. They got juries in the Watergate cases. We always manage to do it. So this is another one of these phony baloney excuses um, or um, kind of pre-buttles about a potential conviction that, oh, of course, I'm going to get you know convicted in Washington, D.C. They're all a bunch of you know members of the deep state. Um, but um, I will assure the Trump people that if I am called as a juror, I will say I cannot render an impartial jury and I will ask the judge to dismiss me. So they needn't worry about the Jennifer Rubens of the world being on the jury. I mean, the fact that well, this is what the front runner of the Republican nomination is facing is, is disturbing and problematic in itself. But I guess putting aside all of this craziness on the right and with Donald Trump, let's talk about President Biden because he continues to do his job very, very well. And as we all know, he got the debt ceiling eliminated with this bipartisan vote last week, so he won't have to deal with that or the threat of default during his first term. He passed so many pieces of important legislation from the Inflation Reduction Act to the Infrastructure Act to so many other things. He's managed to get the economy working well. But I'm wondering kind of what you think is causing the disconnect between his job performance rating, um, because it doesn't seem to be matching his accomplishments. Why is there that kind of differential right now? I think there are two things. One is specific to him and one is not. The thing that is not specific to him is that Americans are very cynical and perpetually displeased with politics. So when you ask someone, are you pleased with politics or are you pleased with the president? Their natural overwhelming inclination is to say no. Is Biden their ideal president? That's what many people interpret approval being meaning if you had your choice of anybody in the world, would Joe Biden be a president? We're setting the bar way too high. I think the whole notion of approval has kind of lost its meaning because we now have a public that is so hypercritical of everyone and anything that any incumbent, aside from maybe your city councilman, probably has a very negative job approval. That problem is made worse by this negative bias in the media, which we've talked about, where they give them credit for nothing. Um, they are constantly making mountains out of molehills. They are constantly equating small mistakes with enormous policy gaps that uh, Trump made. So on one hand, you have the public's general disposition made worse perhaps by the way the media covers him. But I think you also have to say that Biden is not the kind of president who plays for every news cycle. He doesn't really care if people think at this moment that he has ground Kevin McCarthy into the floor with his heel, which he did. He has a notion of governance, which is really kind of old fashioned and kind of charming, that if he delivers things for the American people, life will be better and people will give him credit for that. That may be wrong. We may be so far beyond that, but that's kind of his attitude. And as a result, he's not in there constantly trying to promote himself the way Donald Trump is. He's not in there constantly bashing the media. He's not in there, you know, taking up hours and hours of our time on national television the address he gave from the Oval Office on the debt ceiling was the first time he had been in the Oval Office to give an address for his entire presidency. So I think the answer to the question about this disconnect is some of it's endemic to our politics and our news coverage, and some of it is kind of specific to him. And I think where I come out is none of this really matters. It really doesn't. What matters is, will they like him better than whoever the Republican nominee is? And in these polls where they question the people who don't like either one of them, which I have a sense is a very large segment of American voters, he wins overwhelmingly. When someone says, I don't like either one of them, he has a 40% lead among those voters. So I think when you get down to it, when someone goes in the booth and they have to sit there and think, okay, I don't really like Biden because he's boring, or I don't like Biden because he's old, or I wish Bernie Sanders had been chosen, or I wish, you know, AOC were president, or 
none of that matters. They have a choice before them and they're going to have to make that choice. And I have some faith in the American people still that there will be even more people this time than there were last who will reject Donald Trump. What person who voted against Donald Trump last time is going to say, oh, what was I thinking? I like him more now. <laughs> Just logically, he's going to lose ground from where he was before, right? I mean, he's not made many friends since then. So we're just talking about a level of intensity among his core supporters. But we've had so many other people peel off. I find it very hard to believe that he could win again. It doesn't mean there's not a threat. It doesn't mean that we want him on the ticket because, of course, there's always a risk. And he is likely to try to instigate another insurrection if he doesn't win. Um, but I think Republicans really have to sit down and do some you know, hard thinking. Like, who has become a Trump voter that wasn't a Trump voter in 2020? I don't know who those people might be. I, I think one of the best things that President Biden did in 2020 and also what he's doing now is that they, the entire team, I think, realizes that Twitter is not real life and they're avoiding that noise. And I think, like you said, for that, that's proving to be very good, I think. And, and it's fair to say in this connection that Victor and I were both Biden delegates, that we both believe in bipartisanship. We both believe that compromise is not a dirty word, that that's how you get things done. And that getting 100% is not a win. A win is when you can bring in a bipartisan compromise. So I, I just want that said. But I think that's great. I did not know that about you guys. And yeah. I, you know, see, I even I have things to learn that, about you too that I didn't know. And I also think it's so fascinating that when he doesn't get 110% of he wants, there is still complaining on the left wing. Yeah. You know, we yeah. don't like this budget deal. Right. Who else could have delivered so many yeah. items on the progressive wish list? They've been trying right. for how long to get enormous investment in green energy? How right. long have they been trying to get some price controls on prescription drugs? How long have they been trying to tweak the tax code so that the super rich and corporations would have to pay just a little bit more? They have accomplished so much of what people like Bernie Sanders promised because they had the smarts to get behind the guy who could deliver electoral majorities. So I always say, if you want a progressive set of wins, elect a moderate because they're going to deliver most of what you want. That's I couldn't agree more. And it, it certainly was a motivating factor for me in selecting the candidate I wanted to support. Um, and and I am so proud of what he has accomplished, which is amazing, given the false information on the other side and the firmness of opposition. Um, but I, I you did mention his age, and that's one of the things that you know, you keep hearing the media hark on and things like when he tripped at the graduation. I mean, I've fallen flat on my face in front of a live audience and it's humiliating. And I wasn't as clever as he was to say I was sandbagged, which I thought was really, he did it on the spur of the moment. His own brain did that. So what do you think should be done about that? Because his, his age does not seem to bother me. I mean, his mind is working great and he has great people around him. Yeah. And I think his accomplishments are what matter, but how do we get the media to stop this harping on his age? And it's not like he's that much older than an unhealthy Donald Trump. That um, is it's so true. I mean, uh, he's only a few years older. Would you rather have someone who is, you know, just past 80 or someone who's just under 80, but the second guy has lost his marbles, can't his <laughs> sentence and is plainly, you know, out to lunch. So I don't think the media is going to stop harping, but I do think that Biden can embrace the issue and deal with it effectively. And I think he does it in a couple of ways. One is with humor, the way 
Ronald Reagan did. I won't use your relative yes. against yeah. you. Um, another is by saying, well, you know, for an older guy, I seem to have run rings around all of these guys who say I'm too old. Yeah, so yeah. I guess I'm spry enough um, to um, be able to work these. Yeah. And the third is by demonstrating his vigor and, you know, the guy does ride a bicycle. Can you imagine Donald Trump riding a bicycle? McDonald's. Oh, <laughs> yeah, Sorry. I know. You can never unthink that visual <laughs> image. But he keeps up a rigorous schedule. Remember when he went to Ukraine? He yeah, flew yeah. through the night. He was on a train for 10 hours. He yeah. went to Ukraine. He came back to Poland. He gave a big speech. Mm. You know, you have to have a certain level of endurance and yeah. stick-to-itiveness in order to pull that off. So I think by keeping a schedule that is vigorous by being seen on the world stage, interacting and interacting effectively with world leaders. Um, I think you diffuse that. And ultimately, I think it does come down to Joe, would you rather have someone who is a little older than in your druthers you would rather have, or do you want someone who's younger, but a threat to the Republic and out of his mind? Um, and the form of Donald Trump. So I don't think they can ignore it, but it was interesting. There was a New York Times story over the weekend that was pretty balanced about that. And it showed, I think that the administration is beginning to grapple and feel comfortable discussing the issue. They allowed people to talk on the record, which I think is an improvement over simply trying to ignore the issue or run from it. I think that's really important because I think people sometimes forget that President Biden is not the only one in the administration. There are so many people in this administration who are younger, diverse. I mean, it's really remarkable the administrations that he's built. And I think you're referencing Steph Feldman yesterday was in the New York Times and she said something, which is basically that like he's asking really tough questions, still yes. getting to the bottom of issues. He is just as sharp as he was 10 years ago. And I hope that's more of what the media will kind of channel um, with their with their pieces. But I looked through all your columns to pick different topics to talk about, and I couldn't find one about the Equal Rights Amendment. Um, did I miss it or have no, you not written about it? It's, it's a great question. No, um, it's simply because there's so much other news that yeah. sometimes I can't get to an issue. But you're right. That is still out there. Um, there are still states that are in the process of ratifying it. And it's not irrelevant. I think people for a while said, oh, what difference does it matter? We have, does it make? We have women in all these offices. We have Roe. We have all of these other protections. Well, I think we have learned that when you have one major party and a partisan judiciary that is rolling back protections for women, rolling back rights, that this becomes something that is very important, that is essential. So it's interesting. I would I don't think Biden has spoken about it, frankly, and I would like to see him try to embrace that as well and let the Republicans say, no, no, we're against equal rights for women. Um, but I think it's a reminder that because the legal landscape has changed so, because the Supreme Court has been so radical, that ideas that once were seen kind of esoteric or abstract now take on really new meaning. Um, and, you know, because we have gone to places that we never thought we would go with the Supreme Court, we do have to start thinking about alternatives. Another example of this is because of the imbalance in the electoral college, because thinly populated red states get so much disproportionate power in the Senate and then in the electoral college um, that we need to figure out how we get to a popular vote. Well, you can try a constitutional amendment, but you can also try something called the National Popular Vote Compact. Yes. In yes. which um, state legislatures um, are passing a measure that says we will award our delegates to the winner of the national popular vote. I checked the other day. They're up to 205 electoral votes. If they get 65 more, if they get 270, that's wow. it. We could theoretically have that system. That would revolutionize um, presidential politics. So like the Equal Rights Amendment, I think we have to start looking for creative and um, perhaps unusual solutions because we've gotten to a place that we should never have been. And so we have to go back to the 
tools that we do have and see if we can fix some of this. Well, you have hit on two of my favorite topics, which is I think that all that Biden has to do is say, Attorney General, start enforcing this. I believe that the Equal Rights Amendment is the law of the land, that it has been ratified by the correct number of states, that you cannot withdraw your ratification, and that the time deadline didn't have anything effective about it because it wasn't in the amendment, it was in a prelude. Um, and I totally agree on the Electoral College and this compact. It's something I've been working on for a while now, the ERA since 1976, and I wanna see it happen soon. Uh, so let's hope for both of those things. And then let's turn to your podcast. Yeah, I mean, let's let's end by talking about your new podcast. Tell us about it, and specifically, what has the hosting process been like for you compared to like writing columns? It is very different, as you know. You have to ask questions and then shut up, and shutting up is easy <laughs> for me. So that's one problem. But I have been so blessed to make so many good friends in this business over the years, and people have been so generous with their time signing up to be on the show that in some sense, um, it makes it easy when you have really smart, really funny people who you are relaxed having a conversation with and there's a give and take. And so in that sense, I've been very, very fortunate. And it's just, as you know, a completely different medium. It's a different way of communicating with people. And I like that it's a bit more informal, that's a little bit more irreverent, um, that uh, I think it's a little bit more intimate because when, as you know, when you're listening to the radio, or you're listening to a podcast, it's like that person is talking directly to you yeah. as opposed to reading the written word, which has a formality and a distance that is sometimes kind of hard to break. So it's been a great experience and uh, I hope to keep going. I would love to build an audience. All of you who are listening to this podcast, make sure you sign up for Jen Rubin's Green Room um, and uh, we'll see how it goes. So uh, I also think you get better as you go along. You learn things. Uh, I now listen to podcasts in a different way. Yeah, It's yeah. like a uh, busman's holiday. Like, hmm, how are they doing it? How do they answer that question? What was their roundup? What was their intro like? So you become a little bit more of a sponge when you see other people's work. Yeah, it's a great, great format that Victor introduced me to. Uh, I had no idea what a podcast was when he first mentioned doing a podcast with me. And it's this miracle of you call up people that you just find fascinating like you and say, would you come on and talk to us? And you get to have this conversation that you would never, ever be able to have otherwise. And so tell us who some of your upcoming guests are so that people will be able to know. And also tell us where they can find you so that they can sign up for you. And Absolutely. we'll put it in our show notes as well. Great. Well, my first two guests were George Conway and Matthew Dowd. Um, beginning on Wednesday, we'll have a new show up with Matt Bennett, who is head of the Third Way, which is a centrist democratic uh, group that is um, really leading the crusade to inform people about the danger of no labels, which is trying to mount a third party uh, run that would peel off votes from Joe Biden and potentially elect Donald Trump. Um, but I will have many of my dear friends on in the weeks and months ahead, uh, including Dahlia Lithwick, Maya, um, who uh, we all know from her New York mayorship, Maya, Maya, Maya Wiley. Um, and uh, we'll have Elise Hogue, who has uh, led the abortion fight for decades now. And we'll have uh, Margaret Sullivan, who is the former uh, columnist for the Washington Post, the former public editor of the New York Times, who has written a memoir and writes, um, I think, with tremendous insight um, in a constructively critical way about the media. So we'll have all of those and many, many more. Um, we are planning the rest of our summer schedule. So please, please, it's Jen Rubin's Green Room. You can follow and subscribe, please. You can even give me a five rating if you're so inclined on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
So now you are on TV. You are on the you are in the Washington Post. You are now in our ears. Where can't we find you? This, this is great news for all of us. You know, I'm not on the Broadway stage yet. Let me tell you. So <laughs> well, yeah, something to aspire to. What can I say? Hey, the sisters-in-law just did just off Broadway, and we got to see you in the audience in DC. We were. It thrilled. was great. If, if you do it again, I'm coming again. It is so much fun, and it just shows you what a huge audience Jill, you have built with uh, the gals that people are so devoted. There was a woman who stood up and said, I drove six hours from North Carolina to be here. And uh, I was with my son and we looked at each other and said, oh my word, um, that's motivation. That's devotion. It was. And I, I just want to say, go to politicon.com and you can find our podcast and Jen's podcast. So go there now and sign up for Jen's. As if, and if you haven't signed up for ours, you should sign up for that too. And Jen, it's been such a fabulous conversation. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed it. You're one Me of too. those people that we go like, boy, she's willing to come on and talk to us. It's great. It's always fun. You guys are both great. Victor, I think you are doing such a great job bringing in younger people into the political audience. And Jill, you will always be my Watergate girl. Um, and so thanks for having me on. Thank you. Thank so much. you. That was so much fun that we are basically out of time. So um, I guess we will wrap the episode here. We'll be back next week with another episode of iGen Politics. Uh, wherever you follow your podcast or right here on youtube.com slash Politicon. Uh, don't miss it. Uh, we will see you next week and have a great rest of your week.